Thinking of starting your own business? Whether your goal is to start a new business or grow a current one, OK Vetworks is here to help. Remember, all of our services are free. Get information at oklahoma.gov forward slash veterans. And thank you for joining us today for another entrepreneurship podcast. Welcome to the OK Vetworks podcast from the ODVA. Well, today we're going to be talking about streamlining your company's strategy. You know, you can't blame organizations for trying. They're, they're faced with many challenges and competitive pressures at, at such a rapid pace. It's only natural that they respond with lots of strategic planning and initiative. Carrying those out are teams of talented employees who get increasingly overwhelmed. You would think that they would have a Herculean effort uh, that would pay off. But what's surprising is often it does not pay off like you would think. So a couple of questions I want to start us out with this morning is, is why are business leaders facing such a strategic overload? And what does the concept mean to you? You know, there are so many pressures on businesses today that just think about that everything that's going on, the digital transition, the pandemic, the global supply chains that don't quite work the way they're supposed to changing the customer tastes, changes in technology, changes in preferences. There's just so much. You have a global competition now that we didn't used to have. You have supply chain dis disruptions. You have climate change. It's a never ending changing atmosphere that we're living in the, in this world today. And so many really question in the end of how do you bundle all of these activities? How do you make sure in this sea of activity that you're actually, or we're actually pulling in the same direction? Because that's another reality. Uh, that's an interesting thing to think about when you see the data. If you ask the super successful companies how their activities and how many of their products, how many of their services really create that kind of success, the numbers often are surprisingly small. Just saying the strategy is not a complicated thing, but probably perked a lot of ears as people are hearing this because complexity has been such a post word. And, and so managing complexity, understanding complexity is a kind of what a lot of people think they're responding to or supposed to respond to, to become senior leaders or act as senior leaders and less about managing the complexity and actually simplifying the complexity. And you can scale back rather than figure out how to handle it. I think of it in three phases. The first is conceptual is conceptually, and you know, how do we think about the strategy of an organization? And that that level, I find it's not complicated. So you don't have to be a gray hair, you don't have to have lots of wrinkles on your faces, but you actually everyone in the organization can be a strategic thinker because you're asking two very simple questions. One is, does it change the willingness to pay? And two, does it change the willingness to sell? You know, the challenging part I think comes when the, in the second phase when, where it's all about creativity. Because in the end, as we all know, competitive advantage comes from differences across the companies. So not only do I need to find ways to increase my customer's willingness to pay, I need to do it in a manner that is differentiated from our competition. And so really at the heart of the strategy is the idea that we got to be creative in seeking a novel way in seeking of novel ways 
of doing it. Sometimes when I think about when I speak to executive teams, I would ask them the questions, you know, what's your mood in, in strategy meetings? And the answer is generally, oh, we're very focused, we're analytic, it's a very somber meeting, it's very serious. You know, I ask them how often they last in these strategy meetings. It's very rare that I get anybody that says we never, we, we often laugh. And I ask them to describe, you know, what's the right environment which you feel that you can be creative? And it couldn't be more different. Someone is like, oh, well, we're laughing when we're being creative. We're thinking of crazy ideas. We feel inspired by other people and what they have to say. That, I think, is, is one of the disconnects that we have in society. Strategy is a core to creative enterprise. And then the third phase is, is in fact, when we go from having these ideas of implementation, and I think there in the large organizations, as we know, there's a degree of complexity. How do you get divisions to collaborate? How do you make sure the right people get the right kind of benefit from a particular event? So there's a complexity in the implementation part for sure. But even there, I think if, if everything is tied back to a couple of really simple principles, even the implementation actually ends up being very simple. You know, I brought up two terms a moment ago that I think I should go into a little bit more detail about. That is one is willingness to pay, which I believe is, is a lot of people are very familiar with, you know, making products experiences more compelling for customers so that they're willing to pay more. But a lot of people think that's about the other side, about lowering the cost. And you, and you use the term willingness to sell. Now, let me, let me explain what, when I use this term. On the willingness to pay side, there's willing, there's nothing that I can tell you that I, you really don't already know. You know, it's, it's important to keep willingness to pay and price separate from one another. Willingness to pay is most, is the most a customer be willing to pay for the product or service. But very often, you know, if I go out and I need a cup of coffee in the morning, my willingness to pay for that first cup, cup, maybe seven or $8, maybe depending on where I go. But I go to Dunkin' Donuts, I don't need to pay $7. So the willingness to pay and price are different. And the same ideas is on the other end, what I call a, a value stick. Willingness to sell from an employee's perspective is the lowest amount of compensation that I would take to move someone from other firms to your country, to your company. So suppose you work for at, at another company. And I would love to have you join my organization. So what's the absolute minimum that I can offer you in order to attract you to come over to my company? That's your willingness to sell. Now, typically we end up paying more for competitive reasons because there's lots of interest in your talent, just like the prices are typically lower than your willingness to pay. The cost of the company, how much they actually end up paying employees and suppliers are typically higher than the, that absolute minimum. But it's interesting and helpful to think about the absolute minimum because it helps think about how can I make work more attractive? So if the job I have for you is your dream job, what are you, what you always wanted to do, of course, my offer, financially speaking, doesn't have to be quite as enticing because it's your dream job. 
And this is in fact, we see that we, what we see when the very best companies, they often hire talent. It's a, it's a bit of an unfair advantage that they don't have to pay quite as much as other organizations because the jobs themselves are intrinsic, intrinsically very interesting or more motivating for people who have these jobs. One example of this jumped out at me in, a, in an article that, that the Gap put out, the clothing retailer, you know, using an app to help its employees trade shifts more easily and cover for each other. It's a beautiful example because they, they, they ran this experiment for a little while that targeted one of the most ch challenging areas of a retail worker. Some in retail typically don't know their schedule very far in advance. So it changes from week to week. Making plans, living off, living our life is super difficult because you'd really never know when you have to work. When am I off? And of course that comes along with swings in income. If I get more shifts then your income is a little better. If I get fewer shifts, your income falls. This can be a third or up to a 40% of your income, income swings from week to week. And it's just terrible. And so Gap did a very interesting thing. It's a very simple thing. They used an app called Shift Messenger. That's essentially created a marketplace for these shifts. Today, you know, when you have a big concert at school, I probably don't want to work on that shift at the gap that, that, that the gap has offered me. I want to trade it with somebody else. And interestingly, it's also allowed the company to take shifts back that were not needed without hurting anyone's income because you're taking them back from people who tell you, eh, actually I was assigned to the shift, but it's not the best time for me to work. That had an amazing consequence with the company, you know, productivity increased dramatically. Uh, some store sales went over the course of experience, jumped millions of dollars. And then when researchers at Berkeley looked at the long-term effects, they saw better health outcomes. For instance, people slept better because there was less stress in their life. And one thing that I really love about the story is a love of thinking about the particular way to create better working conditions is when I speak of executives and say, how could you make this job just a little bit better for everyone involved? We're very quickly jumping to, to intricacies of the job, the, the, the work processes, but it's, there's so much more than the process of your, in your organization. Work is a commute. Work is stress or joy of getting dressed in the morning. Work is how anxious I am about evaluating a meeting. That performance meeting that we had yesterday, for example, you know, how did that go? I'm stressing about it. What will happen if I make a mistake at work? What is that interaction like? And am I so, and am I proud to wear the logo? When we add and talk about customer intimacy, I think it's so right that you really need to have the holistic, broad understanding of our customers or your customers in order to know what's the best thing for their company to add value to their customers. At the same time, it's true for the, tr the talent in your organization. I've given here some upsides of pursuing a value-based strategy. So what are some of the pitfalls or, or issues that you need to be aware of before you sell out on this journey or you set out on this journey? 
it's a bit of a change in mindset. It's in particular, if, if you're very short term oriented, sales driven organization, where, where re really the, the, the question every day is how do we sway more customers to buy products than we currently have? It's a change in how we think about business. And one thing that I noticed when I spoke to a former CEO of a company that virtually he was, he was fairly relaxed about the profitability of the company. Now you might say, of course he is, he's a big company, but how does this amazing turnaround? So you deserve a little bit, you leave, you deserve to be a little more relaxed, but for him, it was actually the attitude that he should have and that you should have. And I found it to be true across very many organizations that successfully implement value-based thinking. If you know you create value for customers and employees, you simply know in the end, this will turn out to be a financial success. And now you can be patient. You can think creatively. You know, many of them shift profit pools in, in, in really interesting ways. I, I talk a little bit about how competition today is often shaped by shifts and profit pools that make life easier for organizations. But you have this confidence, I think, is a, is a good way to describe it. Among these executives that, bec that because they're in the business of creating value and they know they do it successfully, of course, financial success will follow. And so that reorientation, I think, can take some of the work, can be just like a real, any reorganization when you think about how many more organizations are purpose driven these days. That's a shift in mindset that also takes some work. But in the end, if you believe that you're the right on the right path, if you believe that your organization exists because you want to create value, I think the fruit that you will earn is amazing. It's really spectacular what these companies can do. You know, it's hard for companies that have invested so much in, in time and energy in their existing strategy infrastructure, for lack of a better word. I, I just imagine that a lot of managers would hang on to the muscle memory of strategic planning sessions that they've been holding. It's hard for them. It's also, how can we overcome that? You see, when I help companies implement value-based strategy in their, in their organization, I actually did not find much love in these existing strategic processes. They're often seen as bureaucratic. They're often over, overly determined by budget concerns. It's really, in the end, what's my budget going to look like? And one of these things, of course, is interesting about creating values. The value that organizations create doesn't really show up in your financials or shows up in your financials only in indirect ways. So when I go out, my willingness to pay coffee is $7, but I get it for $2.50. The difference shows up is by, in my being loyal. It shows up by me going out to buy coffee tomorrow again, but doesn't show up in, my, in a very direct way in the financials. And so strategic planning processes uh, that are essentially just financial planning processes that actually miss the boat a little, if you would. One of the first steps I recommend to create, to recommend is to create a value map. So value maps have been around for a very long time. 
uh, it's one of the best hands hands-on exercises you need to you need to really work on and I we, we must have we must have done thousands of these for companies in the nation you know overall certainly with hundreds of companies and essentially what a value map is is something very intuitive so willingness to pay and willingness to sell is how we measure how much value we create but willingness to pay is still relatively abstract. It consists of many different factors that drive a person's willingness to pay. And everybody thinks they understand. In fact, that's funny how, how we, we hear about this is because we often think that we have teams a particular customer segment and then just make a list of what drives, what the drivers are willingness to pay a particular customer segment. But when you have a multitude, multitude of teams doing the same exercise, invariably they come back with totally different types of values. They don't agree with each other on. <clears throat> These are, are called value drivers. The components of your willingness to pay. They don't agree on what the value drivers are. Or if you ask what the relative importance of one driver or another. They're very rarely do they see eye to eye. And that's one of the benefits of value maps. So when you ask what are the drivers of willingness to pay, there are val there are different values, drivers. And then you measure performance of relative com competition. So you're really asking something like, you know, think of an airline. If you happen to serve a customer segment that is really being on time, is more important than anything else. And then so why why would you ask how good are you at a particular value driver in a relative competition? And the basic intuition could could be simpler. It's about willingness to pay. And we and we know willingness to pay only matters if I raise if I raise it in a way that is differential differentiated from the competition. And so the value map is a very simple, intuitive way. Shows you both where you are today, where your competitors are today, and then most exciting, it shows you the opportunities that might change your life and with a value proposition going forward. So when you've identified these value drivers, what do you do then? What's the next step that you need to take? You see, you have this beautiful map already there, so you stare at the map for a while. So there's two intuitions that should, you should have at this point. The first is if you change your performance for any value of the value drivers, there's little financial calculation attached to it. So how expensive will it be to change it? What's the return if I change? How many more customers do we sway? So this is where the connection to financial planning comes in. But it's a strategic, it's strategic in a sense that you want to change the value drivers that are really critical for your customers. And you really want to pull ahead as opposed to catch up with the competition. And that's something like that is um, in many organizations, sometimes a little more counterintuitive because you think, oh my goodness, we've fallen behind and you say customer service. Shouldn't we catch up with the competition? Well, if you catch up with the competition and customer service, two things happen. 
Are you really a better organization? Well, yeah, you are. You've made some progress. You have better customer service. Are you also more similar to the competition? Well, yes. And what happens if everyone's value stick looks exactly the same? How will your customer choose? Well, the customer will choose based on price. So sometimes I meet with executives and they tell me it happened to be in this industry where there's so much pricing pressure. My customers are so price sensitive. Man, I've heard that so many times over my career. And my first thought is always, it's not the customers. If your value stick looks like everyone else's value stick, if my willingness to pay for your product is exactly the same as my willingness to pay for the product, every other product, how on earth am I supposed to choose? Of course, I look at price. I also look at we're taking these value drivers and we're trying to eke out our advantages relative to the competition in a way that, that gets us the most impact for capital that we can spend. The other thing that strikes out, uh, uh, strikes me about really focusing on certain value drivers as it, is it brings back, it revives the notion of trade-offs, you know, making trade-offs, which is fundamental to classic strategy theory. But it seems like the complexity of strategic overload is perhaps the lack of trade-offs. This is one of the most interesting experiences. Um, when you look at that value curve. The case for discussion is interesting, but you know, everybody, people, people just know that some of this information, but of course, if, if you make trade-offs and then you go off and we do the value curves and ask people to come back and tell me, how would you like to evolve your curve over time? How are you going to be more competitive? And guess what? Everything just improves. This notion of trade-offs is completely gone. Even though we speak about it for, you know, we spoke about this about 10 minutes ago, roughly. Most strategy meetings that I'm a part of and have been a part of in the past are all long list of things to improve. There's never the, a question, you know, what, what will we stop doing? Where will we under invest? Where can we cut back? Because we're not making trade-offs. It's then really difficult to bring good ideas that we have and bring them to life because we simply just don't have the resources. You get this kind of, my colleague works there and, and he has a fabulous phrase. And I think, I think I've heard this phrase before that really catches the mood in the organization. And when they speak about it being exhausted mediocrity, where you see your exhaustion, because everyone's trying so hard. And at the same time, you don't get a stellar performance. Now, how can this be? There's no trade-offs. So how do we avoid getting back to complicated strategy again? Do we need to take a strategy audit every six months or every year just to keep tabs on everything? You know, once you have these value maps and indicate how you want to change your value proposition over time, you can then translate these changes into discrete projects, into discrete initiatives. And for each of these projects, for each of these initiatives, you will see how much progress that, that you can make.
you know, did we hit as a benchmark? We wanted to raise the willingness to pay by 12%. Are we hitting that 12%? Is it only at 8%? Why is that? So value-based strategy is enormously data-driven. You see how you want to move them over time. You see, color, see in a color code, if you would, which departments are responsible for making that change. And then you have to, in an usual fashion, the green and red dots, are we on track? Are we not on track? And what I find amazing about the company is, is that the posters are everywhere. You know, everybody knows, are we on track? Are we not on track? And does the CEO tell us about the surveys that, that, we, that we think about, that they do about how do people understand the strategy of the bank? They're somewhere in the 90s. Imagine that 90% of your people in your organization not only know the strategy, what the strategy is, but they have a sense of how those big lofty goals and how they translate into what they do every day. The next thing is, is for companies that start down this road of value-based strategy, how soon might they start seeing results? How quick are the wins? One of the key messages is you have every reason to be super optimistic about the potential gains that your company can make. If in fact you find novel ways to create value for your customers, for your employees, and for your suppliers. I do a little experiment. You know, first imagine a hundred companies and you rank them from the worst to the best. And say you're exactly average, so you, and now you want to improve. You know you can't be an Apple or a MasterCard. You can't be one of those major corporations, but you could, say you can improve from that rank of number 50 to a rank of number 40. How much of a difference is that? That's a 20% increase in your profitability. Imagine that. It's not like all of a sudden you're the industry leader. That's maybe not realistic to expect, but even small modest changes that refocus on the organization on the value creation can have this really dramatic financial impact. And if I look at the impact around the globe and other countries, the number is even larger than it is in the United States. Finally, business leaders today get, get beaten from every which direction. And that sometimes makes it life a little hard to remain optimistic. But always just remember, in the end, you're in the business of creating value for other people. And if you do that well, both, I think the recognition of your customers and your employees, of the people that work for you, but the recognition in financial markets is really difficult, is not that hard to see. Well, that today, folks, concludes our podcast. I hope you get, find some value in this podcast. And again, I thank you so very much for listening today.